0: welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max. Thanks very much for tuning in for the show. Today, a conversation with New York City Comptroller Brad Lander digging in on the work of the Comptroller's office on a variety of fronts as the city's chief financial officer and responsible for oversight of the rest of city government, especially the mayoral administration, and checking in with Comptroller Lander as he nears two years in this citywide office after having won the 2021 election and taken office at the beginning of 2022. We're talking about ways in which he's tried to put his imprint and priorities into motion in the Comptroller's office and then also various challenges facing the city, including the migrant crisis and its strains on the city budget, and really touching on a lot of topics here in the conversation you're about to hear, which we recorded on Wednesday, October 18th at the studios of Manhattan Neighborhood Network. So you could watch this conversation, if you'd like, on MNN TV or on the MNN YouTube channel, and you're getting the audio version here, of course, in the podcast feed. This is under the Represent NYC series from MNN, which is interviews by and with elected officials. Uh, This is a return to working with MNN for me after a little bit of a hiatus. I've done a lot of work with the network in the past, including in those 2021 elections where I sat down for individual 30-minute interviews with each of the candidates running for mayor, comptroller, public advocate, Manhattan borough president, and Manhattan district attorney also moderated some debates that year with MNN in some of those races, and also some city council races in Manhattan, and have done a lot of work with MNN in the past. Uh, before that, on election coverage and interviews and debates, and then also under this Represent NYC banner, which is more about government capacity and elected officials. And so looking forward to doing some more, and we'll be bringing you the audio of those interviews here at max politics so first up in that series controller lander here which you're about to hear in a moment and then some other guests on the way so stay tuned for those Uh, a really interesting in-depth conversation here with the controller so you're about to hear the rest of my introduction to that interview from the mnn studio and then right into the conversation with controller lander which i hope you find interesting and enjoyable here it is Joining me today for an in-depth conversation is New York City Comptroller Brad Lander, a Brooklyn Democrat who holds one of just three citywide elected positions in New York City government. The role of controller is an important one, including as a check on the mayoral administration. The controller is the city's chief financial officer. Comptroller Lander also calls it the city's chief accountability officer, responsible for auditing all city agencies, providing oversight of the city's budget and fiscal condition, monitoring the city economy, reviewing city contracts, and several other specifics, all while generally pursuing policies to improve city government efficiency, effectiveness, and integrity. A key part of the role is also that the controller serves as a fiduciary to the city's five public pension funds, which are worth around $250 billion and serve roughly 700,000 current and former city employees. Comptroller Lander was elected in 2021 and took office in January 2022, as did Mayor Eric Adams, also a Brooklyn Democrat. But the mayor and controller have different politics and have disagreed on a wide range of topics over the last two years, a number of which we'll discuss today. We're checking in with Controller Lander here in mid-October 2023 as we near the halfway mark of the four-year term and the city faces several major challenges, including significant budget gaps, in part the result of expenses related to the care for tens of thousands of asylum-seeking migrants who have arrived in the city over the past year plus. I'm going to ask the controller about how he's put his imprint on the office, which employs hundreds of auditors, accountants, economists, and others, about the city's economic and fiscal health, and what he thinks the city should do about its precarious budget situation and the cuts Mayor Adams is planning. How he thinks the city should address a number of other challenges, including its affordable housing crisis, the impact of climate change, and more. So let's get to it. Controller Brad Lander, thank you for being here. How are you? Uh, okay. It's been a challenging couple of weeks,
1: but um, I'm loving the job as we near its halfway point of this term. The
0: you know opportunity to try to make the city run a little better every day is a good challenge. So thank you for having me on to talk sure, about and, it. And thanks for doing this and, and for all the time we're going to have together today. So you've been in the office nearly two years. Talk a little bit about how you've put your imprint on it. What are some of the ways you've either changed the office or instituted new focus areas? Yeah. Obviously, I already He said, "There's a lot of things you have to do, but you also have some leeway." So what have you done? You know,
1: when I ran, what I said, you know, people would ask me, "Well, you're uh, progressive. Why are you running for comptroller? That's kind of in the weeds." And I said, "You know, look, um, what I believe is not only is it not true that like compassionate and competent government are in conflict, but that they have to go together. Uh, I believe we need a city that uh, addresses the challenges working families uh, face. You know, so whether that's child care, affordable housing, that." is more inclusive, that invests in addressing homelessness, a whole range of things. But you can't Achieve those big progressive goals if you're not running the city well, spending the money wisely, making sure the agencies are actually doing the work effectively, seeing what you started doing years ago that you really don't need anymore, but you just kept doing because you're not going to be able to put a new program in place otherwise. So that's kind of the big picture. It's like we think of that as a competent and compassionate government, and that's what we try to bring as a lens to everything we do. And that's in how we invest the pension funds. We had uh, you know good returns through June 30th. We beat our benchmarks. Um, and we also have the most ambitious uh, climate net zero plan. We do a lot of work on behalf of workers at the companies we invest in to make sure. So so in the pension funds, that we sometimes call ESG. We could talk more about mm-hmm. that, environmental, social, and governance activated. But it's really responsible investing, good returns with attention to um, the critical set of systemic risks we face. In how we audit the agencies, you know, we're looking at uh, how our agencies is functioning, and a lot of that is just straight up kind of waste, fraud, abuse style. But sometimes that's which policies are effective at confronting the problems we face, like the one we did on homeless sweeps, where we found that you know, this policy that the city had ramped up of uh, displacing homeless people from the encampments where they are is totally ineffective, in addition to really lacking compassion. So we displaced 2,308 people, and only three of them got housing. So, um And maybe I'll just give one more example of... Uh, One thing we've tried to do with the tools of the audits is say, what matters to the New Yorkers who are dealing with these systems? You know, in the city council, I helped bring participatory budgeting to New York City. And we tried to say, what would participatory auditing look like? So for NYCHA, for New York City Housing Authority in particular, we said, well, what that would mean is assembling a group of NYCHA residents to serve as an audit committee and doing working with them on a bunch of surveys to say to NYCHA residents, what do you want us to use our audit power to look at? they've identified two audits that we have underway one looking Um, at the repair vendors and is there any system, how do they get chosen? Are they ever evaluated? Are residents involved in those evaluations and are there any consequences so that the ones who are doing the work well get more work and Mm -hmm. the ones who are doing the work badly get less? Um, And then residents also wanted us to look at these rad conversions where um, developments are are moved to a private manager and does that increase eviction rates? So um, we had agreed that we would do two audits at the, you know. the direction of this resident audit committee, they're both underway. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are very much about how's NYCHA doing its work, but because they're guided by resident voice and vision, um, hopefully they'll be able to even have a stronger impact.
0: So let let me follow up on a couple of things you said, Uh, one on homeless encampments. So does that mean it's it's your position evaluating uh, the lack of success in homeless encampment sweeps that homeless encampments should be allowed to stay where they are indefinitely as the city does more outreach services? What's the position then? If that's the look at it and if yeah. the data says they're not successful because there'll be a new encampment, you know, down the block or somewhere else pretty soon and the people don't wind up in services and housing, what's the what's the answer? So we this is a place where we try to do something kind of creative. We,
1: we audited the, the sweeps, and that was what the data showed, you know, that 3 out of 2,300 people got housing. Almost, you know, very few, I think it was like 40 out of the 2,000 even you know stayed in shelter for more than a month. Um, so that means the vast majority of people were still sleeping on New York City streets basically the next night. Um, And, yes, maybe you moved them around, but you didn't change. So, But then we did want to say, well, what would work better? So we actually did a policy report on a range of what are called housing-first programs. Most supportive housing moves people through the shelter system first, and, boy, I wish we wrote prose as good as Jennifer Egan does. That wasn't a comptroller audit, but I would urge your your readers to look at what she wrote in The New Yorker on supportive housing. Most supportive housing, you have to go into shelter-first, and lots of folks who are sleeping on the street for a range of reasons don't want to go in the shelter system. So there are programs, even that New York City operates on a very Mm -hmm. small scale, that take people from the street, put them in housing, and wrap services around them. Uh, There's a very small called Street to Housing pilot, which we looked at, and looks much more promising. Uh, The city has effectively ended veterans' homelessness with programs Mm -hmm. like that. So that's what we wound up saying. Like We did an audit. The audit just looks at the one program. But then we added this policy report to be able to compare and say, if the goal is to end street homelessness in New York City, um, then adding a Housing First program or scaling up the ones we have has a lot better chance to get there. And again, that's not just compassionate to people who are sleeping on the streets. That's just a more effective way. You know, having folks sleep on the streets is terrible for them, but it's terrible for the city as well, thanks to the right to shelter, which maybe we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. we got a lot less street Absolutely. homelessness than Seattle or San Francisco or Los Angeles, but if we ramped up our supportive housing and our Housing First programs, I think we could dramatically Mm -hmm. reduce it.
0: But in the meantime, the policy recommendation for you is leave encampments where you find them as you try to encourage people into those solutions while better executing the policies that allow for people to move directly into supportive housing, which we know there's also challenges around the city filling the supportive housing yeah. slots that are available. Yeah, and some of that gets to
1: staffing vacancies mm-hmm. in the in the city. I guess I would put it a little differently because I think what we we did make the recommendation of ending homeless sweeps, but that's not the same as leaving the encampments. I mean, what we think is that deploying uh, those housing first programs, um, scaling up these respite beds and stabilization beds, um, actually is a more effective way of getting people off the street. So if the, even if your goal is just to say what would reduce the number of people sleeping on the streets of New York City, uh, from our point of view, the evidence says uh, programs that enable social service organizations to build relationships, which sweeps destroy those relationships, um, build relationships, have the kind of shelters people are willing to go into and scale up, you know, f- uh, housing first mm-hmm. and supportive housing programs. And those are shown to be
0: more effective than the sweeps are. A couple other things you mentioned in your in your broad overview of what you've been up to in a the, in the couple of years and your approach to the office. Um, we'll come back to the pension funds maybe in a little bit, but you mentioned this idea that taking a sort of competent, compassionate approach to government uh, and a progressive approach by if you want to launch new programs or scale up things you think will work, you have to find some things that aren't working or stop really working but still get funding. Are there examples of that that you can cite? Are there things you found in this nearly two years as controller where you've said that because clearly, and I think you've already stated that you agree with this, clearly we saw over, the, we've seen it over the course of a very long time, but definitely during the de Blasio years, a lot of agencies become sort of bloated, a lot of programs started, some of them well intended, but maybe they didn't work out and they're still getting funding and there's all sorts of, you know, it was boom times. You know, things were yes. really good until the pandemic yeah. for a lot of those de Blasio years and you were in the city council during that time. Um, are there things you found that you, you know, you've identified now for the Adams administration to say, hey, you, you're looking at some budget cuts and savings. Here's some areas where we should really look at those. <laughs> yeah, let me say one uh, systemic thing first and then get at a few of the specifics because
1: you mentioned the fact that during the Debaz administration when you know um, uh, tax revenues were so high and cuts didn't seem necessary that they didn't do any savings programs. And I think we should amend our four-year budgeting. Pro- you know, we have a whole set of prescriptions on how the city budgets that come sort of out of the Financial Emergency Act or the financial crisis, so we do four-year budgeting. It has to balance. You've got a range of ways you present that information. I think it should require that every time you adjust the budget, you have agencies do a long-term savings plan. Over the four years of the plan, um, they can present where they want to do a new program. They can present a new Mm -hmm. need. But they have to present some areas where they're saying, okay, like we could attrit this out. Attrition is a lot easier if you do it over four years, Mm -hmm. Because um, you know some people are going to retire, vacancies are going to come up. And that's a better way of being able to plan. When you're only looking at pegs as very, sh- when you're not doing them in the good years, then you let them grow and grow. And then when you're only doing them like the pegs that um, Mayor Adams announced last spring, where he gave agencies two weeks to come up with cuts, that's when, like, the libraries get closed on Saturday and Sunday, instead of saying, OK, how's it going with the transition to more digital information? and Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so, a couple examples of things that are... Right yeah. before you say that, let me just, for those unfamiliar, oh, PEG, Program to Eliminate the Gap, a Savings Program, mm-hmm. uh, GAP being Budget Gaps. Yeah. And, and But the
1: it, name is even a problem, because it's
0: fair right. enough that if you call it Program to Eliminate the Gap and you don't have a GAP, yeah, then exactly. you're like,
1: I don't need to do a PEG. So probably we should call oh, it eh. like a Savings or Efficiencies mm-hmm. Plan that every agency is doing as part of its budget practice, so you could find it. So I'll give a few examples. Yes. One of my favorites is, you know, uh, you and I have been talking for many years years about how to make our capital and contracting processes more efficient, we're required still by state law to have a public hearing on every contract over $100,000, and there are tens of thousands of those contracts. 99.9% of the time, no one goes to the public hearing. Mm -hmm. Um, It was actually created back when you couldn't have information online, didn't Mm -hmm. have the internet, so a bidder might want to know, how did I... did I lose out to and can I see who won it and what they bid so I can make my bid better for next time. That is all achieved now by putting the information online but we have people, you know, so we have the staff who hold hearings, who prepare all the information for hearings no one ever comes to. That's not going to, we're not going to balance the budget by Mm -hmm. having that reduce over time but we're in Albany fighting to eliminate the requirement and then we'd be able to save a little money on not having the hearings. Some bigger areas, we just put out really good reports on uh, special education claims which have grown tenfold, a thousand percent over the last decade, and on um Claims against the city of New York, one of the biggest of which are traffic crashes with city vehicles, mm-hmm. which also have grown dramatically in recent years. And in each of those cases, we put out proposals for steps the city could take. The problem is, those aren't going to achieve you big savings, you know, next, mm-hmm. next Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're harder to offer as a peg. Uh, but if we had savings plans, if we added speed delimiters to city vehicles, if we had consequences for city drivers who, Uh, showed patterns of behavior that would likely mean they're going to be in crashes and if we couldn't drive the city vehicles we could save tens of millions of dollars every year something similar with um, special ed if we, this is when we have to invest to save, because we've got a lot of kids who aren't getting the services that they're entitled to, then they bring a claim in court, and we wind up spending much, much more than we would have. Um, So those are some areas where we think that sort of more long-term
0: approach to savings would really enable us to to make that transition. Let me zoom back out for a second, then we'll keep going into some of the details here. But you, you clearly see the role of controller like like you see other roles in government, I think, as, as very expansive. And uh, as I'm sure you know, some of the, the sort of criticism you get is that you're, you're involved in everything. You're at almost every, you know, sort of progressive rally giving your take on the issue at hand. And uh, there's a way that everything, of course, can relate back to the city's finances and budget and bottom line. So there's clearly connections, whether you're talking about um, uh, police, you know, accountability and claims against the city again, or, or a variety of things. But say a little bit about that approach and sure. how you think about that, because I think there are some people who say wow, I see him involved in everything, and maybe there should be more focus on the nuts and bolts of the audits of the agencies to really help find these savings? Because again, as you just said, some of these things you're identifying are tens of millions, hundreds of millions. They need years to incorporate. The city's facing budget gaps right now of billions of dollars. So do we need to focus more on that? So uh, first, I would say um, I'm really proud of the way the office
1: that I and the 700 folks in the controller's office meet the uh, charter requirements uh, of the office a lot of those things just are less like likely to like go viral on social media you know the annual claims report and the ways we dig in on those claims our monthly economic newsletters actually get some good mm-hmm. attention you know we do the so um, the but a lot of the responsibilities the audits the bond underwriting we're doing them every day that's what most of the office is focused on um, fair enough it's like we don't have pictures on social media of the auditors you know Mm-hmm. Pouring over the invoices, um, we've done some really hard-hitting audits. The one that we did of the city's ferry system identified uh, two hundred and twenty-three million dollars in hidden expenses, mm-hmm. essentially, and won some real changes. The EDC has significant, you know, has you know had to raise the market price of those tickets, um, and so there are a lot of those kind of audits. We, you know, we did ones of COVID emergency spending. We really have focused on emergency spending. Uh, trying to learn and apply the lessons from COVID to asylum seeker emergency expenditures, putting out a ton of information about those contracts and bringing spotlight to them. So I just really would challenge anyone who would say, you know, are they meeting the mandates the charter gives the controller's office to look at that body of work? It's all on the website. And I feel really proud of how we're doing it. Again, we beat our benchmarks on the pension funds. We found ways to save on bond under on uh, the city's bond issuances, even in an era of high interest rates, and even as we've done the city's first social bond offering. So I'm confident that we're showing you can work for more effective government while also working for more progressive government. And I guess I would also say, look, I don't always agree with the mayor, but one thing I say to people when they you know, say, you know, is like he told people who he was when he was campaigning and he got elected and he's, you know, acting in the ways. And I guess I would just say I I didn't hide how I was going to do the job as control I ran on a platform of combining effective and compassionate, effective and progressive government. And that was what I was elected to do. And so not only am I meeting my charter mandate, I'm meeting the democratic mandate of how you uh, how you run and, okay. and win. And social media
0: is what it is. Sure, sure. No, I mean, I, you know, I'm not, not just sourcing no, that no, from no, social I, media. Yeah. But, no, I, I think it's an interesting question about, and listen, obviously your predecessors were also you know, doing all sorts of uh, things while they were in office and pursuing their policies. <laughs> Policy priorities and, and yeah. it's a you know it's a political office and there's uh, ways in which the office holder can shape it and and choose what they add their voice to while also doing the mandated responsibilities. Did you want to add something? No, no, that's okay. So so you mentioned Mayor Adams, I want to come back to to ways in which you've disagreed on some things, but one area where you agreed and you worked together on was this issue of the backlogs in the nonprofit human services contracting? It seemed like you came together early on, you had identified this even before you both came into office as something you wanted to both work on. You released a report, you made some initial progress, but we still hear a lot of issues about nonprofits not getting paid anywhere near on time. There's obviously questions about what's in the budget to increase the payments there. But but that aside, where are we at in terms of the timely payments yeah. and that effort to really I mean the city as we'll get to in a second contracts out for so many services yes. I want to ask you about that again but where are we at in terms of timely payment for those services yeah so this is a system
1: that is what it, it was profoundly broken uh, and we are making steady process to improve it but we still have a long way to go so I'll give you a few examples of things we've done together and a few examples of work we really still have to do because there's just a a lot of both. So yeah, last year we did a whole—you know—we announced this clear the backlog initiative. That's not really systemic improvement. That's just like we got this giant backlog. Let's move quickly right. to clear it, right. and that was important to do because people were waiting on billions of dollars of pay. But it's true that was not systemic reform. We've just put in place two things um, that I actually think are, are really are going to help a lot. So. Discretionary awards, which are city council awards, only account for 3% of the money that nonprofit social service organizations get, but 40% of the contract volume because they're $5,000 and $10,000 awards from council members, you know, as opposed to some multi million dollar, you Mm -hmm. know, contract for, you know, shelter. So um, those have historically been annual awards. And one thing we worked with the council and the administration to do is make them multi year contracts. Now, this still doesn't mean you're guaranteed the money in years two and three because the council still has to make its awards every June. But if we make that a three-year contract subsequent, you know, subject to appropriation, it doesn't have to go through the contracting process in years two and three. So that's going to massively... We. So this was the first year we put the multi-year contracts in place, so it didn't save any time this year. But next one. year and the year after it will. Another big thing we've done is built in... Um, uh, and a, so previously, if you had a contract amendment, let's say you want a COLA, your workers organized and they got a COLA, and now the city's going to add the extra money to give raises to the security guards and social workers in your organization, it had to go through the whole registration process again as though it was an entirely new contract. So we've written into now the standard city contract, the city can do up to 25% increases Without having to go through the registration process again. And amendments are also a very large percentage of what we've been reviewing. So those are two big steps that are going to save time. Now, it, are we yet to what we call contract stat, where you can really visibly see, how long are they taking? Where are the, you know, uh, you know both internally for each agency and for City Hall and for the Controller's Office and to the public to really be able to see where the bottlenecks are and provide regular reports? We're moving in that direction. It's a high priority of the Mayor's Office of Contract Services Director and the first Deputy Mayor and mine. That is, you know, kind of a big technology project mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and a lot of internal challenges so we have more to do and any yes i i still get plenty of calls but it's gotten better one thing i'll say just in our office we have 30 days we're at the very end of the process so in the average nonprofit contract is 300 days gets registered 300 days after they had to start providing services we're only the last 30 days We're doing it where the city,
0: the mayoral administration has entered into a contract, uh, a city agency, the mayor's office. has. You have to start providing those services, an after school program Mm -hmm. or,
1: you know, whatever it is, July 1st, generally. uh, And you're expected to start providing services. We don't generally, on average, get your contract registered uh, until the next May. And like, obviously, you couldn't say to a police precinct or a firehouse or a school. Yeah, please start, you know, fighting the fires Mm -hmm. and educating the kids and keeping the neighborhood safe on. July 1st, and we'll pay you, you know, next bay when we get around mm-hmm. to it. But that's what we do with our nonprofits. So, um, but yeah, so that w- because it works its way, the agency's got it for a long time and is finalizing the details of the contract. And then the law department, the mayor's office contract services, and the office management budget. We're the only ones on a clock. No one else has it. We have 30 days mandated by the charter to register or return the contract if we think there's a, a problem with it. We get them all done in 30 days. We, I think, have approved 98.8% of the mm-hmm contracts, but that means there's a meaningful number that there were problems with and we sent back. Um, we, and we're, our average is 17 days. Okay. So we did just save time in my office just by saying we're on the clock.
0: We got to, you know, really have real management efficiency here. If, <laughs> if the contracting process was more timely, do you think you might send more contracts back? Oh, that's because an y- y- question. you almost can't do it if the services are already, ha- uh, you know, months into being provided. It's it's that's a very challenging situation. I mean, I, look, I,
1: I you know the one we most visibly you know uh, one thing I'll say is that even when we return them, the mayor does have the power to overrule us. Usually, they they address the mm-hmm. objections that we have uh, because it's often that something was missing in the contract package, or they go back. Sometimes they deployed a not appropriate procurement method. That, mm-hmm. You know, they have to go back. And do it again um, because that's the rules. But with Dot Go, which you know that was you know the city started paying them uh, back in the sp- in the early spring, um, and you know
0: hundreds I- of millions <laughs> of dollars for. Asylum Seeker it's, Services yeah, that's a 432 from a company that was doing COVID, uh, this medical you know, has been examined so very well by my colleagues in the media, the yeah. Albany Times Union and others, some real questions about that performance. So. But
1: so that's a $432 million contract. We don't know how they got to that number, or how they decided this medical staffing company was appropriate to decide Asylum Seeker Services. They had reported at the time that they had already spent $70 million. And I guess what I would have done if it was up to me was said, look, of course, we have to pay them the $70 million mm-hmm. for the work that they've already done, but we don't think that we should continue on with this contract. So I don't know if it will be that
0: different. We, we give them the scrutiny that the charter requires whenever they get to us. In a lot of the contracting that the city does, there's clearly more waste, even abuse that gets found out later, uh, redundancy at times. What's being done by you, by the city administration, and or what should be done, to identify some of those issues yeah. more, which would of course save the city money yeah. and also save whatever the outcome, negative outcomes might be where people are being abused or misled Absolutely. or whatever it might be or not served in the way they're supposed to be That's served.
1: That's right. But one challenge for us, and I think people don't understand the role we have in contract registration, because what we're looking at when a contract is coming to us is did the city follow the proper procurement process? Right. Did they bid it? You know, did they do the responsibility determination? You know, and so it's not we don't look. We, we review, over, you know, about twenty thousand contracts a year to make sure the procurement process was appropriate. But we aren't. We don't have the resources. Are what we're required to audit are city agencies. So. Um, on this question, if we want to go back like with .go after a registration and say, we're going to really dig in on the services provided by that vendor out of the 20,000 vendors, um, one, we don't have the level of resources because we have to do the city agencies required by charter and we have to do the procurement review. So, uh, services, contract mm-hmm. services audit is something it would probably do to have more resources on and we're looking at how to do that and doing a few more of those. Uh-huh. Um, but that should be the Getting done by the the agencies are responsible for and the oversight of contract of, services. Uh, no, this no. issue of is the vendor providing the services it was contracted to provide sits with the agency who contracted okay. with them. So HRA or Department of Homeless Services or Department of Youth and Community Development, mm-hmm. and they all have audit shops that are looking. There are some things we could do to make it better. Like we honestly need to strengthen a few of those rules, and I've proposed some rules mm-hmm. changes because our nepotism and subcontractor rules are not as strong as they should be. The Department of mm-hmm. Investigation. Did a report and found some instances in which, you know, someone hired a cousin or a friend to be the carpet cleaning vendor or the food vendor or the security vendor, in ways that, um, you know, you can make a case. And uh, but the rules should be stronger to prevent that, um, and that would help for sure. On emergency procurement, we also, after we did that audit I mentioned on COVID emergency procurement, which found widely varying expenses for what we had spent on vaccinations and tests, we made a set of recommendations to the agencies. When you do emergency procurement, you don't generally have to do an RFP or a competitive bid. That's the nature of what you can do in the emergency, but you still are expected to attend to price competitiveness and just make sure you're not getting just like price gouges sure. Um, and we made a series of recommendations. This one example is right now the city has five different open staffing contracts for asylum seeker services um, from three different agencies. And we don't see evidence, and we're, we're looking at this, that anyone is like pulling those together in one place and comparing. It's not that easy because this one described the services this way and this one described mm-hmm. it that way. So maybe they both have security guards, but it's not that clear. Um, Um, So there are some things like that, even in emergency procurement, which, of course, we're doing a lot of, where we could be making sure we're getting the best
0: price. So to some, though, this seems to be something of a gap here, as you're saying, you don't in the comptroller's office have quite the resources to be able to really audit those contractors and the contracts uh, and leaving it up to the agencies who are entering into the contracts doesn't seem like the best system. Well, that is where you have to start. Obviously, an agent, the
1: agencies are contracting with these folks to provide services, and the Department of Homeless Services knows how homeless services are supposed sure. to be provided. So that does need to be the first line, is that the agency needs to be expected to make sure that the, contra- the services it's contracting for, it's getting. Like, we do have to start there. But then more oversight is needed of that system. Uh, City Hall is doing some work on a new vendor integrity unit. We are putting more resources than we ever have to. That in the past, but that's, you know, that just gets us to a a handful of these contracts.
0: We talked about this a little bit in our last conversation on uh, my podcast in June. I wanted to revisit your latest thoughts on this this question of the city does so much of this outside contracting many people would say the city budget is already big enough and and would bringing more public capacity on increase costs more than you would get in savings because once you bring it in public capacity you have to pay for pension obligations and all sorts of other expenses but do you have any latest thoughts on the question of whether the city is doing too much contracting and should be looking at ways to build public capacity in a different way to provide those services directly I, mean, I think you really have to take this on
1: a kind of case-by-case basis mm-hmm. I mean first right at the moment the city's having a challenge just staffing up its agencies to meet the core needs and that is critical you know but you know let's take housing that's the thing we you know everybody cares a lot about on the one hand the city needs the, enough staff at HPD to be able to review the applications for affordable housing on the other hand as someone who spent a lot of time in the housing world. I think that the nonprofit affordable housing providers um, are, are doing a great job restoring neighborhoods. And I mean, I care about public housing a great deal, but I guess I think at the moment, let's keep putting resources into expanding our nonprofit affordable housing uh, universe. And um, I don't think like saying, let's go back to the days that we were building new public housing is just realistic mm-hmm. um, to address a crisis. Crisis that we're facing. Now, there are some areas it's critical to do in-house, like cybersecurity. We have too many vacancies at Cyber Command, because during the pandemic, people could work from home sure. and get paid more in the private sector. I don't think we should outsource that work to some private cybersecurity contractor. That's a capacity the city needs to have. Um, but I don't know, for asylum seeker services as an example. On the one hand, I admire the way that health and hospitals said, we want want to step up and create Herx. you know that we got a whole shelter system mm-hmm, and right. H&H created its own additional mm-hmm. shelter system and you know Dr. Ted Long who runs that is a great public servant And but it's not. We need our health and hospitals to be providing for public health and we need New York City emergency management to be preparing for storms and if they wind up trying to scale up to shelter asylum seekers rather than saying who are the social service um, and immigrant service organizations that have the capacity let's work with that have appropriate Get oversight of them. I think we would wind up weaker in responding to public health. And as we did a weather emergency. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to have good oversight. Of course, you want to make sure people are being paid appropriately. Um, those things are
0: critical. But I wouldn't say, let's pull those things back in. Interesting. Um, so on the asylum seeker crisis, this is obviously one of the areas, but not, not, not the only, where the city's budget has entered more precarious standing. The mayor's uh, administration estimating $12 billion in estimated expenses over three fiscal years, including last fiscal year, the one we're currently in and the following, Um, what's the, do you agree with that estimate of, of that $12 billion Obviously, the federal government has been mostly missing in action in terms of funding, starting a little bit of help with uh, some services and, and helping with uh, the uh, temporary protected status expansion to Venezuelans and, and some other policy matters, but the funding aspect really missing. Some state help uh, and more expected, the governor has said. But um, do you agree with that estimate of the $12 billion? What should the city be doing differently on that? Uh, let's just continue yeah. to assume the federal government it's not coming in with more money. Everybody wants it, but that's just not happening right now. Um, what's the city doing right, wrong on um, the funding there, and how does it impact the budget bottom line? Yeah. So we think that roughly $4 billion
1: annual estimate is about looks about right to us or about what we're spending. We'll mm-hmm. obviously see as the year goes by. We didn't spend $4 billion last year, even though we had about a year's worth of asylum seekers, but now the numbers are much higher than they were. So we think that this year's number is on path to be about $4 billion, maybe even uh, a little more. I will say just it's important to remember that's about a third of the budget gaps as they grow over the next years. And I do think it's important to see that that comes from a variety of factors. We gave raises to public sector workers that we needed to give, and that added $17 billion to the budget over the course of the plan. Federal COVID aid ended, and we've created great new programs like Summer Rising, and we Mm -hmm. expanded 3K. Wonderful programs, but if you keep spending on the programs after the money you were using from the federal government is gone, you're going to open a bigger budget gap, and then there's things like Uniform Overtime that have just kept growing and growing, um, and asylum seekers. So yes to to those estimates, but I don't like the rhetoric which implies that's what's responsible for the budget cuts. Mm -hmm. Like, to me, that is uh, both false. You know, if you wanted to say that's about a third of the budget gaps, fine. But that's not two-thirds of them. And I think a little dangerous, you know, if you tell New Yorkers that that's who's causing your library to be closed on Saturday. Like, that's both false and irresponsible and, and risky at times of so much... Um, shared anxiety. So Mm
0: -hmm. that's some agreement on the numbers, which is obviously a reference to what the mayor has been saying at events. You know, this crisis is going to destroy the city and language like that and telling uh, people this is coming to your community and uh, kind of blaming mm -hmm. the crisis for the cuts. Um,
1: And I've definitely heard New Yorkers say some version of that and Mm -hmm. then they feel like it's, you know, so so that's agreement on the numbers and disagreement on how we talk about it, I guess. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, There's some truth um, to, the, as you said, the budget gaps being partly due to these unexpected costs. Now they're expected, but previously unexpected. It's and the money has to come from somewhere. Let's t- I'll get in one minute to the federal government and the state government, their mm-hmm. obligations and what
1: I think we should do. But one other thing I want to say is, like, you know, people at the moment are saying, oh, you know, I, we shouldn't have the right to shelter, as an example. And it's true we spend money not having homeless people sleep on the streets, but it's not a better city if we don't spend money to have homeless people not sleep on the streets. Or the same, like, we talked about those growing costs uh, to provide uh, mandated services to kids with special needs. Like, New York's law is actually more stringent than the federal law. We could repeal it and then we could save money by providing fewer services to kids with special needs. But, like, that's a bad long-term plan. So, what you have to do is get people on board thinking the ways we're investing money make a stronger collective city. And I'm sure that is true about immigration because it's been true for the city's whole history. When we find ways to welcome and include people and they can get to work, the economy grows in ways that are good for everyone. Um, that doesn't mean you can do everything you want to do. you got to have bounds. Mm-hmm. So what should, well, uh, the federal government needs to step up. And th- th- I know this isn't a politics show, but like this is one reason why uh, we should be working our butts off, to, not just to make sure Joe Biden gets reelected, but that uh, Democrats are elected to Congress that we win back those seats in the Hudson Valley, that Hakeem Jeffries becomes Speaker of the House. So we could have the resources that we need to meet what is, after all, a federal obligation. The right to seek asylum is a federal obligation, and we are helping by providing shelter while people are able to kind of come here and do that. The federal government should be paying all of it, in my opinion, but, Mm -hmm. you know, at least a third of it, split it between the city, state, and the federal government. We have to keep pushing for that. In the meantime, the thing that encourages me most about what the city could do to make a difference is actually a little good news here that hasn't been so much told over the summer months after I think it should have been scaled up. The city has really scaled up its Asylum Seeker application effort. There's a great center where people can get help because you have one year from your date of arrival to apply for asylum. And if you do, even if your asylum case takes them 10 years to process, six months later, you're eligible for work authorization. If you get TPS, you don't even have to wait. And so the city has helped over 5,000 people now apply for asylum. It's scaling up the TPS effort. And we're going to be able to help a lot of people get work authorization that's the fastest way to help people get out of shelter get on their feet contribute to the economy and not have to pay the shelter costs Um, and that like i said only really started getting scaled up in july i have been pushing for it since about february Uh, but the state just put another 30 million dollars in to support the city's efforts and i believe we should just be doing everything we can to scale that up that will not totally solve the problem not everyone will get work authorization not everyone who does will get a job not everyone who does get a job will move out of shelter but (coughs) every single person who does
0: saves us $138,000 a year Mm -hmm. um, and it's really worth the time. When we last spoke you were noting that part of the reason for what's going on along with the lack of work authorization for uh, many asylum-seeking migrants some of that has been adjusted and of course the paperwork needs to be done for anybody eligible but part of the issue is is that migrants are were presenting themselves under right to shelter and so vastly expanding the ways in which the city must by the consent decree that's four decades old provide shelter for people presenting themselves in need of it the mayoral administration has been working to reduce some of those costs, has been starting to implement some time limits on people's stays. Uh, Lots of disagreement with some of the ways that the mayor's rhetoric has escalated, as you just noted. But but there's also, I think, a lot of broader sympathy for the ways he's saying this isn't really sustainable. (coughs) And there's a lot of questions around. Can the city continue to to provide right to shelter in the same way? Are there exceptions in an emergency like this? Should there be ways in which the city is instituting measures that, for lack of a better phrase, are somewhat deterrent to thousands and thousands of more people arriving every month. Uh, where where does that line get drawn? Where do you sympathize with the city administration? Can New York City really take all comers and provide right to shelter to everybody uh, in, in continuation, even if it's a shorter stay? I think we actually can. To be honest,
1: um, I mean, we're not in charge of immigration policy, and that is a different debate. And you know, we—I guess I'm, you know—luckily, I'm not—you know—I'm not the controller of the federal government. So there is an important, you know, uh, debate about how to handle uh, global immigration policy. But the numbers we're seeing in New York City are not anywhere near historic highs. You know, we're getting about 10,000 people a month. At the peak of the Ellis Island era, we're getting 5,000 people a day. Mm-hmm. Um, And the question is, how does New York City respond? And, you know, what the mayor has proposed to do with the governor's backing on right to shelter is not just to have the power to deny right to shelter to new arrivals. What they're proposing is something that would allow them to deny right to shelter when the mayor declares it an emergency to a much broader range of people. And I don't know. Eric Latch just had a story in The New Yorker about one of the city's respite centers where they kick some folks out. And now they're sleeping under the BQE. Um, You know, I. I don't believe that if we eliminate or constrain the right to shelter, fewer people are going to come to New York City. I just believe more people will be sleeping on the street, and I just don't see how that's good for uh, for any of us. I also don't think people want to stay in shelters for a long time. Like No one is walking through the Darien Gap all across a continent thinking, you know what I would like to do is live in a small hotel room or a congregate shelter. Um, so I I really do think we should at least first put a lot of energy into the process of helping people get work authorizations and jobs, because let's look at what the data says. If we've got that system in place, and people are arriving, and then we can help them, and then they get work authorizations, and they move out, and they start working and contributing to the city, that's what we want to be happening. we lost 400,000 people uh, in population during the pandemic, and folks in restaurants and on construction sites and nurses. There's like so many people we need to hire, is,
0: and is, yeah. is even that potential shift from individualized uh, hotel rooms, which again is not ideal for for many people, but even that shift to more congregate. Shelter type of sites does that make sense for the city to to do for in a bigger way? Single adults uh, congregate shelter is permissible under the city's
1: right to shelter rules and has been. And mm. and legal aid nor I and our coalition for the homeless has objected to. Uh, you know, I went to the Brooklyn Cruise Terminal, which is one of the first places they started doing that, and I thought that they had actually set it up responsibly. So you 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 the rules don't allow congregate shelter for families, and the city is it looks like gonna is. is Seems like just this is this week's news. Planning to do that at Floyd Bennett Field. I really have concerns there. Families in congregate settings uh, just contains a lot of risks to have adults and kids all kind of in an open space like that. So I do not support mm-hmm. that, but for single adults, yes. Okay, uh,
0: we're we're already getting closer to our, our end of our time together. So let's hit on a few things quickly. Uh, give me the as as city tax revenues come in, you're watching the budget. What are the biggest concerns you have? Uh, just sort of high level. Is it property tax receipts and the and the diminishing value of some commercial and office space? I know you've put out a report saying. Even in a very bad situation, that's not really that big a threat to the city's bottom line, but it has to be a concern. Is it reductions in? Personal income taxes for more and more millionaire, billionaire migration, because it's a whole new world of, uh, you know, the the economy. And I know people of, of all means want to live in New York City for a variety of reasons. But yeah. um, what's the biggest risk to the city's bottom line that yeah. we haven't talked about? Well,
1: yet? first, I want to say the city economically is kind of doing better than you think for mm-hmm. most people. I don't mean you specifically. I think we're in the kind of this like anxious, you know, come through the pandemic, you know, uh, time. And we do have budget gaps for the reasons we talked about. We don't have budget caps because the city is not doing well economically. Last year, uh, we were $5.7 billion more revenue than we had projected. We had expected that there was a real risk of a recession as a result of rising uh, interest rates. Uh, Knockwood, you know, that hasn't happened. It seems like uh, inflation is coming down without unemployment going up significantly. We have basically, we're basically back to the level of jobs we had before the pandemic. The city has the highest number of office using jobs, not people in them every day, that it's ever had. Mm-hmm. So the city's economy is doing better than any any kind of you know consensus econ- economist thought one, two, or three years ago, um, and that's just good. That doesn't solve all our problems. It doesn't magically produce the money we need for our budget gaps. But it's like an important thing to pay attention to because I think there's a kind of doom and gloom, you know. And in fact, the city's economy is pretty strong, and we're even diversifying in sectors. We put a economic newsletter out last month that looks at the tech sector, which surpassed Wall Street, even though Wall Street jobs are you know, basically you know at or near their historic highs. So it's a lot to like in the city's economy. Mm-hmm. In terms of what the biggest risk is, I do think affordability uh, is the biggest one. That takes a little while to show up in the tax revenues, but if we, you know, with housing prices through the roof, if young families can't find a place and then they move elsewhere, and then employers don't choose to locate here because they are not don't think that the folks will be able to find a place to live, that to me is the biggest medium to long-term risk to the city's economic thriving, Our affordability questions, and that's why we need more housing, more affordable housing. That's why I want to find the resources to do more childcare. Um, there are things we can do to ease the affordability burden facing working and middle-class families um, yes also worried about um, vacant office buildings you know there is really um, you know the vacancy rate especially in class b and c the older office buildings is you know are you know on average double what it was before the pandemic that doesn't look like from the analysis we did like it's going to be catastrophic for the city's revenues but it's still not a good thing and that's why we want to support conversions to housing where appropriate retrofitting office space to be class a so it
0: can get new users and diversifying to other uses as well so let's talk about affordability and housing uh... the mayor has put out a number of proposals on this. Uh, the governor obviously had an ambitious plan that she put forward that did not pass, and there were all sorts of uh, negotiations around that. Um, what do you see as the most promising pieces on this that need to happen as soon as possible to address the affordability issue in the city, especially around housing? And as part of that, you were a leading voice uh, criticizing the 421A program, a a tax break for developers to incentivize uh, rental housing, including some affordable housing, a program pretty much everyone agrees had a lot of problems. But it went away and wasn't replaced with anything. And we're seeing the results of that in terms of a lack of production. There was a a bit of a boom. A big boom before the deadline, but yes, fair enough. But not even, uh, sort of getting to pre-pandemic, some no, prepaid. no,
1: no. The boom, the, the, once the, all the numbers came out, yeah. at first
0: they put numbers out. that made it seem like the boom wasn't that. This okay. doesn't solve our problem. We, okay. I agree. So there's a bit of a yes. boom to get in under the tax break. Yeah. And now we're seemingly, we, we still don't know because the, it takes time. But yes. many yeah. uh, experts are calling for some sort of replacement for that program that's yeah. more efficient, maybe goes deeper affordability. Even the governor put out a replacement. Uh, and we put out collateral. a replacement. Out, I, think, yeah, sure. I think those
1: are the only two actually yeah. put, on okay. table, yeah. put on the table is the one the governor put yeah. on the table and the one we put on the table. So, first, I support the proposals that the mayor and the governor have made, leaving 428 to the side for one minute, for a new housing supply. I'm supportive of the mayor's City of Yes zoning proposals, and I'm supportive of the governor's land use and, and related programs for housing growth. I prefer the ones that look at the whole region and don't let the suburbs off the hook because it's a big metropolitan region. That's why we've got a transit system. But I, I support them. I don't think... I think they're sufficient on their own, just building new market supply or new market supply with a little bit of affordability in some of the projects. I don't think we'll filter down to the folks who are really facing the affordability challenges, and it takes a long time, and so in the meantime, you've got people facing evictions. Seven of the top ten tab- uh, the top seven neighborhoods and eight of the top ten for evictions are in the Bronx because just upward pressure on rent drives out low-income and working-class people. So that's why I wanted to see good cause eviction paired with those supply programs. That deal was available to be made in Albany last spring. I think they should be back in session right now and not even waiting till January. Mm-hmm. It ought to be number one. And they can make that deal. Mm-hmm. New supply programs, including a replacement for 421A and good cause eviction protections and preferably also those housing access vouchers. Um, that's the right deal. And they need to make
0: it. And I'm it doesn't, it doesn't seem like there was a deal on the table that included the governor's mandates for growth, in other words. Agreed. I mean, look, I I would like to The legislative support for that just wasn't there, even among New York City representatives.
1: Well, I don't think New York City representatives were willing to take on their suburban colleagues sufficiently. I think they would, a lot of New York City uh, members would anyway.
0: I think there's a lot of New York City members who don't want that type of... And I called
1: this out, mm -hmm. so I I mean, I agree with you. I'm I'm for the governor's ambitious pro-supply program, the mayor's uh, city of yes program, Mm-hmm. Good cause eviction protections to protect tenants from unfair rent increases, which we're really seeing. This is just not theoretical. Uh, even for people who, like, you got three, you know, young people teamed up, each paying a thousand bucks in what sounds like a three thousand dollar unit, and someone comes and kicks them out because someone will pay five thousand mm-hmm. dollars. We're just seeing a lot of it. So, and good cause eviction protections. I want a 421A replacement, and we've put one out, with going through all the details that just spends the money wisely. You know, we just like a lot of those deals were. Dr- Dramatically oversubsidized for the affordability that we were actually getting. That needs to be a program that deploys the tax breaks for actually affordable housing. We put out a proposal. It's on our website. And then finally, I do think we also need to scale up what I call broadly social housing. This brings us back mm-hmm. to the nonprofits' community land. You know, I was at, at uh, Co op City uh, last week for the 50th anniversary of the Co op City NAACP chapter. And Co op City is big, tall buildings, much taller than in most people's neighborhoods. And sure. if you ask people, you know, we got a housing crisis and we need more supply, how do you feel about big, tall buildings in your low-rise neighborhood? Almost no one would be like, yes, I'm for that. If you say to a working class, and I've done that also a lot, uh, folks, um, how would you feel if it was uh, uh, essentially like that, a co-op that your kids could buy into affordably? I'm not saying every hand in the room mm-hmm. goes up, but an awful lot more do. Creating things like that go a long way, not just to providing affordable housing but building the coalition necessary for the growth and supply we
0: need so you're one of the voices on a do-it-all basically really housing are. platform there seems to need to be a real coalition around that The mayor doesn't seem supportive, you know, the the good cause eviction is a poison pill for the governor, seemingly. Uh, The mayor hasn't expressed support for it. How do you get a coalition that's actually going to do an all of the above? Because for many legislators, the sort of build everywhere, the transit-oriented development, the stuff in the governor's plan, that's a poison pill for them. Can you get a coalition that says, uh, let's do it all and actually push
1: forward? I, mean, I don't think there's any doubt that that is possible in Albany. Like, mm-hmm. there is a coalition behind both growth and tenant protections. Uh, how to make it? You know, I'm not, a, I'm not in Albany. Yeah, I'm yeah, the New yeah, York City yeah. controller. I think this is the kind of thing, um, I don't know. I actually saw Senator Schumer, who and he and I were talking about this. And I was like, you know, the style of leadership that he has that, like, gets people to make compromises that holds, in his case, a coalition from Joe Manchin to Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders that has to deal with the House, aye, aye, aye. Um, it, it, This takes that kind of leadership to make a deal happen. But I don't think there's any doubt that it can happen. Mm. And we just need New Yorkers to keep pushing and demanding because, yes, the the governor and the mayor should back off their opposition to good co- like, what We need the growth. So instead of saying my way or the highway, say, OK, let's negotiate on on good cause, let's reach a, de- a version of it that people can live with, let's negotiate on supply and, and get it done, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm hopeful they will this year, but maybe I'm just an optimist.
0: Our last five minutes here, the uh, the mayor's manager report, a lot of other things indicate that city government is really struggling, you mentioned this on housing, uh, struggling to provide a number of basic services, including getting food stamps out and cash assistance mm-hmm. on, in a timely fashion in some really bad ways the mayor is not implementing the streets plan as mandated by law with bus lanes and bike lanes. There's a lot of challenges with city government function. Now I think you would admit the asylum seeker crisis has sucked up a lot of uh, effort and energy across city government, but there's clearly, clearly some challenges. What do you pinpoint as one or two things that are really and this might not even be specific to the Adams administration, but what are what are two things when you zoom way out that are sort of broken in city government that need to be addressed? Yeah, we've talked about affordable housing a lot, but I do want to
1: say this here to me once upon not that long ago, HPD was the gem of municipal affordable housing agencies that had the capacity to produce tons and preserve tons of affordable housing. And it was weakened because during the pandemic, people went and took. Other jobs. That's not, you know, the mayor's fault. That's a happenstance that happened, but we need to be investing in bringing that back. Um, the food stamps gap is just another. Like, you can't let people go without their food stamps, and that means folk, you can't do everything in the mayor. You can't prioritize everything in the MMR. But if I had to pick two things, I guess I would say affordable housing and food stamps are like things to, that the MMR is telling us we're not getting to fast enough, uh, and we gotta put the resources there As to do
0: that. As in, poll. Resources from other city agencies till you get that solved. Some of this is managerial
1: attention. Like if the mayor is asking, How are we doing every week on the food Mm -hmm. stamp applications? You know that HRA is going to get the food stamp applications up. Mm -hmm. Uh, For the housing, though, it might be yes. If we don't have the capacity we need in house, we got partners like Enterprise and LISC and some of the banks and, you know, CPC. Maybe they can help us. Mm
0: -hmm. In our last minute here, uh, where the sort of Government and policy meets politics. The you and the mayor have had a lot of tension. Uh, a lot of criticism comes with your job of the mayoral administration. He obviously, uh, to many, has a particularly sort of thin skin for criticism and has gone back of <laughs> some some of what he said he would do in terms of welcoming uh, the controller's audits. But it, it's different when you when you get an audit versus someone out there issuing sort of statement and statement and criticism mm-hmm. after criticism. Um, so two questions: one, uh, what's one thing you think Mayor Adams is doing? particularly well? What do you want to give him credit on? And two, do you think that sort of the the failures of the Adams governing vision and style means that he should face a, a primary opponent in 2025? Uh, on things is doing well. We talked about some real in the weeds ones, the contracts ref- that we're
1: doing together, the contracts reform or capital process reform, a big deal, hard to get any attention to, but will save you know hundreds of millions, probably billions of dollars, and get our projects built on time. A program I like is the work to help kids learn to read. I think facing up to dyslexia and this new program for, we'll have to see how it. You know, at some point we'll probably go in and audit it, but mm-hmm. it's on the right. That's the right track and the right path, and a big deal teaching every kid to read. What could be more important? So. Uh, props there, uh, for focusing on that. Um, we're not even quite halfway through term one, mm-hmm. so like, I, and I want to be able to call out the administration when I think it's necessary, but also work closely and respectfully with all the agencies, with the deputy mayors. You know, recently after Tropical Storm Ophelia, we announced an investigation into extreme rainfall, and I was pleased that he put a quote in our press release, welcoming essentially that investigation. It's I want to keep that
0: fair and balanced, and of course and it.
1: And will be fair, thorough, Mm -hmm. and balanced, but I'm optimistic they'll be responsive and give us the information that we need so we can put something out before next year's extreme rainfall system and do more to keep New Yorkers safe, and that's Mm -hmm. the job, is not to beef with anybody. Mm -hmm. You know, either way, like, there's always tension between mayors and comptrollers, even when, look, Scott Stringer and Bill de Blasio had fairly similar Mm -hmm. politics, and they were still fighting all the time. Mm -hmm. That's not what's productive, so this is the challenge, is do the work with independence, call it honestly as we say see it, but keep engaging constructively. Sometimes that's a little more of a political criticism like, I don't think immigrants are destroying New York City, so, but sometimes that's, let's just make sure we're getting ready and that's how we keep trying so to do So is that a to be determined on whether he should face a primary challenge? It is. Or 2025 sh- is, uh-huh. is, is uh, out there okay. enough that what I want to be able to do is keep being critical as necessary, keep working together as possible. Um, the time for 2025 Politics. Well, well, I agree we'll in a come, lot of ways does. because we're not going to talk about it more now. So we'll, leave, right. we'll leave it there. I'll look we'll forward get to, to coming back on
0: uh, when it gets closer. Well, thank you very much, Comptroller Bloodlander, Lander, for the time. Thank you. And thank you to Manhattan Neighborhood Network for hosting us. As I said at the beginning of this conversation, this is the first in a new series of interviews that I'll be doing with elected officials at the MNN studio. They've just moved into a beautiful new space in Manhattan under their Represent NYC series. You can also watch these interviews on MNN TV or find them on the MNN YouTube channel. If you'd like to look back at any of this interview and like to see us in person, you can find it on YouTube at the Manhattan Neighborhood Network channel. Uh, But you're getting the audio versions here, of course, in the Max Politics podcast feed. Thank you very much for listening here. I hope you found the conversation interesting. There was a lot that we got to in that conversation, and then there was a lot that I wanted to get to and had on my list, but we didn't have time for even in an hour-long conversation, so... I'll save those questions for the controller for down the line. They include more conversation on the politics, of course, and there'll be time for that, as we both noted at the end of that interview, but uh, also a variety of substance and governmental issues uh, that we didn't get to that I want to discuss with him, so we'll save that for the next time. But thanks again for listening. This is Ben Max here on Max Politics. We'll talk with you soon.) <laughs>